0: I'm Lenny.
1: And I'm Matt. We're so glad you guys are back. We hope you're enjoying our podcast.
0: Yeah, this week's episode is, in my opinion, an insane miscarriage of justice. It just makes me sick to my stomach every single time I read about it or watch a documentary about it. And I've listened to some podcasts about this case and watched several documentaries and I'm still blown away by it every single time. This case is known as the West Memphis Three. Damien Eccles. Jesse Miskelly Jr., and Jason Baldwin. I wish I could say that this case was about the three victims, or as the Truth and Justice podcast coined them the forgotten West Memphis Three, Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Christopher Byers. But because of how this case evolved and what happened, the focus has always seemed to be on the three men who were convicted while they, they themselves were children. You know, they got convicted of murdering these three little boys. And the real tragedy about this whole case, in my opinion, is that six kids lost their lives and six families were basically ruined by this tragedy. I mean, it's a tragedy in a tragedy. It's
2: Definitely.
0: It's messed up. So, anyway, I think most of you have probably heard about this case, but if you haven't, you should check out the, the podcast Truth and Justice. Um, and you should also watch some of the documentaries. The HBO documentaries, they can seem a little one-sided, but there's a Callahan website that I got a lot of information off of that gives both sides story of uh, the story. So you can make your own decision on whether you think they're guilty or not, but I tend to lean towards how to say it right at the beginning that they're not guilty.
1: Yeah, when I first heard about the West Memphis Three, it was I was up in Wyoming wild, and, and <clears throat> when you were telling me you were watching it, for some reason I got this impression, like, the West Memphis Three, like, I knew they... Probably since you like true crime and all that, but I thought of like some like Western, like the West Memphis Three. <laughs> right.
2: I could see that. You know what I mean,
1: or like there were bank robbers or something like that. It wasn't what this story is. Yeah,
0: no, this this story is just messed up in a whole kind of way. Big time. Okay, so backing up a little bit. This is going to be a two parter. I know that for sure. We're gonna, the first part of today's episode, I want to focus on the victims themselves and where they went that day and that, that, you know, all that kind of stuff, like everything that led up to, um, the three, Damien, that Jesse, and, yeah, everything that led up to their arrest and, and why, you know, but I want to focus on the, the three boys who were actually murdered, the actual victims, mm-hmm. because, I feel like all the podcasts that I listen to other than the truth and justice one, that's why I'm kind of giving it a a shout out in our podcast is because it actually focused on the case and it focused on those boys and it focused on trying to figure out who actually did kill them, you know, and and that's what they need. There needs to be justice for, for Chris Byer, Stephen Branch, and Michael Moore, because there hasn't been yet. No one, no one's been (laughs) convicted. Okay. So we have convicted, People of their crimes, but yeah. no one that anyone believes is really the I think murderer. So,
1: I think sometimes too, I guess cases when they are subject to being more, um, I guess focused on the guys in this case. Let's say instead of the dead is because these guys are still living. It's still something you can change. You can't change the fact that the, those poor boys died, but we can change what happened to these guys being sentenced. You know.
0: Absolutely. So I get so why I, I, guess I, I get see that. I get why the focus went to them because we could still save their lives at least you know. But um,
1: I mean, it is unfortunate. No, no way around it. But it's just my, I guess me kind of thinking through a while so much focus has been on the the three that went to jail. For
0: right, this. because they were wrongfully convicted, and yeah. you don't want anyone serving no. time for I mean, that. You want but, the right people to put exactly, away. exactly. But I think because they were convicted and because they went to prison. No one started, like, they just stopped looking for the actual killer. Yeah. Because all these people were convinced that they had the right people. Yeah, we
1: got them from away, yeah. we're done.
0: And, and they just wrote it off. But the, the sad fact of the matter is that they didn't catch the right people. And whoever did kill these three little boys, um, got away with it. And that's the part that I don't agree with. And that I'm really glad that that Truth and Justice podcast did like, oh, focus on. Excellent. Is excellent. Yeah, it really, really good, good podcast. So if you want some real detail on this case, because mine's just going to be a two-parter. This guy spent, like, an entire year talking about this. Go ahead and check it out. You you should check it out. But, um, you know, starting with the victims, we've got Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Christopher Byers. These three boys were best friends. They were all eight years old. Second graders at Weaver Elementary School. They lived close by each other. And they were all in the same Cub Scout house. And on May 5th, 1993, when school let out, Stevie Branch was at home. And around 3.30 that afternoon, Michael Moore came over to see if he could play. Stevie's mom told him he could, but be home before she had to go to work at around 4.45 p.m. And they were both uh, riding their bikes when they left Stevie's house. <laughs> so, now Christopher Byers, he his was a little bit of a jumble that afternoon, but... He'd been in trouble earlier in the evening, and he had reportedly gotten a spanking from his stepdad. So, someone said, someone named uh, Bobby Posey claimed that Christopher had stopped by his house between 3 and 3.30, saying his dad had spanked him, and he was running away from home. And Christopher's mom and stepdad, John Mark Byers and Melissa Byers, had uh, confirmed that Christopher had gotten a spanking and been told to clean out the carport for his punishment. He had gotten in trouble because... He was supposed to wait at home after school for his older brother or parents to come home and let him in but he didn't wait. So when they got home and found Christopher wasn't home they ran an errand and on the way home again they found Christopher riding his skateboard on his belly down the street
2: like yeah he's
0: an 8-year-old little boy you know right. so he got he got a spanking and he was made to clean out the carport which he was doing when his dad left again and his mom was in the house and Melissa Byers claimed that she thought Christopher was outside cleaning out the carport. She remembered hearing him come inside and go upstairs for something, but she never saw him. And this is when Christopher reportedly packed his backpack and left the house to run away.
2: Okay.
0: So, but you'll see in a little bit that's a little, there's a little bit of conflict there. Like that was around Not the timeline. Or yeah. one, maybe when
1: it <laughs> took place.
0: Right. Or maybe I got it wrong, but from what I can tell, it, this all happened around between. No, no, actually it, it happened within like four thirty, 5, 5 o'clock or whatever. So maybe, never mind. I think I'm just confusing myself. So it seems that Michael Moore was a traditional latchkey kid though. And his parents weren't home every afternoon. Dad was a truck driver and I'm not really clear where his mom worked. But neither parent was home when he, when he and his sister would get home from school. So Michael Moore apparently got permission from his older sister to go ride bikes with Stevie. And at some point, the three boys met up, and some reports say they saw the two boys on one bike. And there were unsub- unsubstantiated sightings that fit, but at the same time didn't fit, of the boys. One was that there were three boys riding bikes at around 4.30, and she this lady almost hit one of them with her car. But the problem with this sighting is we know that first there they weren't all riding bikes. You know, um, mm. two of them were, but the other one didn't have on one. Or wasn't riding one. I'm not sure which the story was. But either way, two were on a bike. One of them was like... Remember when you used to give people what I think my brother used to say, pump? Yeah. Like you would yeah. get on the back of his bike and he would ride and... Yeah, so... Or you would
1: be on the handlebars or if they had pegs right. on the back of the tires yeah. right there.
0: Yeah. so that's, a face, that's apparently what was going on. One of the little boys had had one of the other okay. boys on the bike with him. Oh, And, and then two... The discrepancy with this lady's sighting is that one of the boys was described as heavyset and having dark hair and wearing green shorts, which doesn't match any of the descriptions of any of the boys. So it's worth noting, though, that there was a guy named George Taylor. He has told people that he was with the boys the day they went missing and that he was the boy that was described as the heavyset and green shorts. Okay. But he claims to have gone into the woods with the boys that evening. But so when the Truth and Justice podcast host interviewed him, his story didn't quite match up to what we know, like the location of where they entered the woods, okay, and you know the the woods they went into were known as Robin Hood Hills, and uh, anyway, like and where Stevie Branch lived, like this this guy didn't have those details, okay, or had wrong details, information, or whatever. yeah. So we're not sure that he was actually it's anything more than just trying to claim it.
1: Give us fifteen minutes of fame, yeah,
0: could be. But uh, the next confirmed sighting uh, was by a man named Carlos Steele, who saw the boys between 5.30 and 6.00 heading into Robin Hood Hills. And around 5.45, Melissa Byers claimed she saw Christopher still outside cleaning the carport. And a neighbor claimed that she saw the the boys meet up in her yard between 5.45 and 6.00 and head into the woods. So that could all be true, you know. Um, At 6.00, Dana Moore, who was Michael's Moore, Michael Moore's mom, saw the three of them on two bikes riding together between 6 and 6.30. Some neighbors, the Clarks, saw the boys playing in their backyard only a few houses down from the Hobbs house and Terry Hobbs' TV branches. That dad? Linda. Yeah. So she saw, as Jamie Clark Ballard, she, she saw the boys playing in her backyard and she heard Terry Hobbs call the boys to get back down there. And basically it seemed like Terry was calling Stevie home. Um also between six and six thirty, Cindy Rico claimed that she saw the boys by a drainage ditch near Blue Beacon and the final sighting was around seven PM by Chris Wall, who claimed he saw the boys heading into Robin Hood Hills when he got out of his night class.
2: Okay. So, so they had some
0: yeah, they had confirmed sightings. But and they were able to, fit, you know, put together a timeline of where the boys were, when, yeah. based on these sightings, you know, from neighbors and things like that. But they had some weird reports, like, um, and I'm going off of memory on this one, um, what I was reading, like, Terry Hobbs had said that he was out looking for the boys. He had told John Mark Byers that he was out looking for the boys or some, or cops that or something. But really, he was at his friend David Jacoby's house. And yeah playing guitar or some weird stuff there that just didn't line up or
1: And then I think I've heard like the Jacoby guy, he's a I heard a pretty good dude. Doesn't mean that pretty good dudes don't kill kill right, right people all you just never know. But I'm just saying
0: Yeah, no, I seems, heard the same I heard yeah. that he's actually a pretty decent guy and not one that would that Maybe, anyone would be and like, suspect oh, he's, or yeah. believed and Right. And no thing. reason to lie or whatever. And it's not like he apparently didn't back up Terry Hobbs or just you know, make an alibi for him, he just told him, look, I, I was, I, we played guitar together when he said he was out looking for Stevie. He wasn't uh, out looking for Stevie. He was, was he my just house.
1: wanted? To, I wonder if he felt like, did he just feel like he needed to say that like he was a good parent, so he was out looking for his kid or something?
0: I don't know. I mean, what or would maybe, be the reason? Well, I mean.
1: Yeah, well, I was out looking for, him. I mean, when he's missing now and then his wife is pissed.
0: Right, because she was know, at work. At work, you know? and
1: told him to be home, right, at 4.45, mm-hmm. and he wasn't. But she and, had had work. Work. and why are you out going to play guitar with a buddy over there, probably drinking beers, and you mm-hmm. don't have our son back at home? I could I could see that.
0: Yes, I could see that, too. Yeah, but, I was
1: looking for yeah. him.
0: But, and on the flip side of that, I don't believe that that would be the case, because Terry House was known to be abusive to her, to Pam. Okay. So, I don't see her being like, where the hell were you? I see more um, her being like, shoot, you know, like, he didn't go looking for my son. He didn't help, you know, like, how do I call this guy out? Yeah. But that's all hearsay. Like, I, I don't know for sure, but um, I, I heard that he was very abusive. So he was supposedly out looking for his son. But that evening that the boys went missing, the first report was filed by uh, Christopher Byers, adoptive father, John Mark Byers, around 7 or 8 p.m. And I think that report that I actually read. It was closer to 8 p.m., but um, I just put the window 7 to 8. Because the last sighting was 7. An initial search was made that night by police, friends, neighbors, and family members of the missing boys. And this is when the time frame and sightings mentioned just a few seconds ago started to come into play. You know, like when the timeline that I provided of where the boys' whereabouts or whatever, this was where it started coming into play. They ended the search the first night with no sign of the boys. So, um, on the same night, this is like a little who, interesting. Who,
2: wait, wait, wait. Who ended the search?
0: The, oh, I the police, the police I guess. Like, yeah, they they had to end the search. Like, it was getting late, and they couldn't they couldn't find anyone, so they ended the search that night, that first night. Okay. I don't know what time. I tried to find um in the documents what what time they ended the search. I just I know. But I know, know that they were searching pretty late.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, I'm sure. I don't know no other cases you'll hear about how they're they're getting all hands on deck and everybody's out, you know, Yeah, but
0: they never search all night. And they know, you know, they they have to end it at certain points because they only have flashlights and stuff. You're going to miss things. Yeah. If you're like, well, I searched there last night in the middle of the night. Well, all you had was a torch. You know, like you didn't have... Any, what any real th- lighting. So what do you think
1: as you a parent, like a parent, would you still be looking all oh, night? Oh, yeah, yeah. I I'd be would. I would. Yeah.
0: You know, and, and if I can't be out searching all night because they say someone's like making me stay home or something, I'm not sleeping. Right. I'm up all night. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so the weird thing was on this same night, May 5th, 1993, <laughs> a restaurant called Bojangles Chicken, which by the way, I. I just want to dance. Did that not
2: dance? Yeah. Bojangles.
0: <laughs> <Well>, anyway, <laughs> Bojangles Chicken, uh, a restaurant called Bojangles Chicken, contacted police about a man they said was bleeding and muddy and who had come into the restaurant and gone into the ladies' room. The man had apparently stayed in the ladies' room for about 30 minutes. The police officer who responded only pulled in through the drive-thru and found out the man wasn't there and decided to leave and send officers back the next day. So the next day, two officers came back later in the day, took some blood samples off that had been smeared on the wall of the bathroom, and some sunglasses um, that were left in the bathroom, and got a statement from the people who had been working the night before and the manager. And then, unfortunately, this evidence was never tested and was reportedly lost by the police. The restaurant was on the other side of Robin Hood Hills, so this seemed like a, like a huge coincidence that a guy comes running out of the the you know comes out of those woods when you have three missing boys yeah. who turn out the next day to be murdered you know right. um and he's, he's got blood he's he's sitting in the ladies room it's all so suspicious and the fact that they lost the evidence you know the police misplaced all this, all evidence. this evidence yeah it it just makes no sense and the first cop that night. I don't know for sure why she didn't go inside and look around and take statement then. I really don't know why she, she went through she the knew, She knew the boys were missing. Yeah, right? she knew there was a search for these missing boys. So why you wouldn't go inside and look, you yeah. know, and handle this? Maybe it could be really Definitely related.
1: a clue. Hello. You never
0: know. You never know. That's the thing. You have three missing boys, and you don't know what's happening. Right today. near those woods. Yeah, so why wouldn't you have gone in? Not
1: that she knew that's where they went missing. Well, or no. Nobody healed,
0: did. Nobody did. But that's the point to this. That's why I'm saying, why wouldn't you have gone in? Why wouldn't you have yeah, gone you in? Yeah, you check and
1: everything. Every lead. Anything. That could be
0: <laughs> something. Yeah. yeah, the fact that she didn't, and she just sent someone, like, the next day, and I believe it was later in the afternoon before anyone showed up the next day. Like, the restaurant had already basically cleaned up that bathroom. You know,
1: they... they... Yeah, we serve customers. Maybe right. They're we'll this up. If, you're not clean. if it's not important to you, then I guess it's not important to us.
0: Well, and they cleaned it up and put stuff in garbage bags and stuff and thrown it out. So the police actually got a lot of that evidence from pulling the garbage bags out. You okay. know, Like, it just doesn't make sense that you wouldn't have gone in that night. Yeah. I, it still blows me away, but you know, the likelihood of this guy actually, like, I, I heard on the podcast, the Truth and Justice podcast, and on, like, the documentaries, I think, they had done some tests, because this guy apparently had, also had a broken arm. Yeah. Um, they had done some, some field tests, so like, could you get from the spot where the boys were killed to the Bojangles restaurant without being spotted, so going through the woods, and coming out on the other side, um, how muddy would you get? Could you do it if you had a broken arm? How long would it take you? That kind of stuff, you know? Um, and try to match it up to some facts that they knew about when the guy showed up to the restaurant and time and death that they estimated for the boys and that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. they really don't believe that he did it.
1: Yeah, it seemed like it would be pretty difficult with the, with the one cast. Three boys that had to be, you know, were murdered. Right. I mean, getting one, okay, maybe two, but then three of them? Right. Yeah, that's a tall order.
0: So they they basically ruled him out that way, but I still have that doubt in the back of my head where I'm just like, how can you be? How can you be sure? How can you know for sure that this guy didn't do it? You can't, and you'll never know because you lost the evidence and you never tracked this guy down. I mean, as, as far as that goes too, like when he left the restaurant and the cop pulls through the drive-through and she says, um. You know, like the guys left, and okay, we'll send someone back. We've got something else going on right now. Why wouldn't well, she well, take the time to go? Look well, at I don't her know. Guys?
1: Well, and two, I don't know why she just didn't. Instead of pulling through the drive-through, why don't you just get your butt out your car, pull in, and go inside and say, "Hey, what's going?" Get eyes on the scene. Yeah, you know, not just hearsay from somebody. Oh, okay, we'll send somebody out tomorrow. Right. Like, go check it out. Well,
0: that's kind of what I said earlier. Why didn't you go inside? But um to not even go like you went through the drive-thru, why not just take a quick drive a couple miles down the road, either direction, around, look around the restaurant and stuff oh, yeah. like that, and see if you can find this guy who's bleeding For or sure. whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. So then you can question him. Mm-hmm. But, no, that didn't happen either. It, it's just crazy. So, uh, the next morning... May 6, 1993, the search search started back up at 8 a.m. The search was all around the West Memphis area, but search teams focused on the Robin Hood Hills area where the boys were reportedly last seen. And around 1.45 p.m., a juvenile parole officer spotted a child's black shoe floating in a muddy creek that led to a major drainage ditch in Robin Hood Hills. When the creek was searched, they discovered the bodies of the three missing boys. So, just a heads up at this point, I'm about to describe the condition of the boys and how they were found. So, if you're not comfortable hearing this, please skip ahead a little. I know these types of details, especially concerning children, is very disturbing. So, this is where you need to skip if you don't want to hear it. And also be advised, like, I don't like hearing it either. So, I didn't go, I don't go into extreme detail on this. Just cover the basics of how they were found. Um, So, the boys were found naked. They were reportedly hogtied, but... I don't think you know how they were actually tied up should be called hog tied their right hand was tied to the right ankle and the left hand was tied to the left ankle behind their back police also found the boys clothing in the creek and the clothes had been pushed into the mud using sticks you know probably in the hopes that the sticks would help keep the clothes at the bottom of the creek it was noted that the clothing was turned um, inside out and two of the boys underwear were not found so Christopher Byers was covered in lacerations to his body, and his scrotum and penis were mutilated. And I think there was noted that he was killed prior to being placed in the creek, but later, further examination of the autopsy report showed that he, too, had drowned. Okay. And then Stevie Branch had several lacerations to his face, and the autopsy report stated that Stevie and Michael Moore both passed away from drowning. All three boys were badly beaten. So um, it was noted, too, that the boys were not sexually assaulted, and it was believed that they were attacked at the same location they were found. They believe the boys' injuries were a combination of a knife and animal in the area, and those injuries were post-mortem, like most of their injuries were all post-mortem. So seems like they were just tied up, stripped down, tied up, and thrown in the Creek, where they couldn't get out and drive. Yeah,
1: and that's where I have the difficulty of the guy with the broken arm doing that. Right. I mean, it could be done, but I just, I could see him, now I could see him killing them possibly if he snuck up on them and kind of scared where they, they kind of scared him and startled him, that mm-hmm. they were right close and he was able to, well, and I mean, then grab the other one, you know, but maybe get two of them pretty quickly and then get to the other, the third one or what have you, but um, the well, whole tying up. Uh, yeah,
0: um, it's so weird, you know, with their own shoelaces, but they were all had head wounds. So another thing, another report that I read basically alluded to the fact that because of their head wounds, even if they hadn't been tossed into the crate to be hidden, because they basically think that they were put in the crate to be hidden and stripped naked to be hidden, if they hadn't been, they probably still would have died because of the severity severity of the head oh, wounds. So okay. it's like someone bashed all three of them on the head. Yeah, you know, and and then stripped them down and tied them up and then dropped them in the creek so that was like a body dump but before they were dead yeah so sad i mean that is horrifying the murderer
1: and who's to say what they thinking i wonder how long they thought that somebody wouldn't stumble upon them i mean once people are going to look for their little boys right but then you know two... Kids love playing down in like creeks and doing that, kind of right. like where the boys might have been playing already and were found there. Well, we used to growing up. You but know? Yeah.
0: So, I, I mean, So, I other know.
1: kids would, you know, do the same and find them relatively yeah, think, soon, you would think.
0: Well, look how fast they were found. Mm-hmm. I mean, in their grand scheme of things, they were found very quickly yeah. for them having been pushed into the water and like using sticks to hold them down so that they didn't float and that kind of stuff. They, they were found very quickly. Yeah. So, they didn't do a good job. But. You know, there was, I do want to note though that there was some speculation that the murders likely took place in another location than where the boys were found, but, and then, you know, that would just make that location a dump site. But most likely because of other evidence that they found, like handprint or a thumbprint or something like that, on, in the mud and shoes and things like that, that they found prints, it had their happen in there. Plus, I think there was like some, lighty uh what is it luminol luminol yeah luminol used mm-hmm. on the bank mm-hmm. and yeah they found some stuff that positive tested positive but that was the the speculation there is that some luminol tests too aren't they don't always react to blood it reacts to urine and things like that too so that could be anything like a, that could be animal piss right that's lighting up from the luminol so they don't know for sure you know
1: okay and i and i see that too because of the the time of day, yes, it's getting into evening or what have you, but I would think that killing them somewhere else and then bring them there and dumping them and doing the things that they did, doing them there, I think that would have, I don't think, I think it was done probably there. Yeah, most that.
0: likely. I tend to agree with that, too. So soon after the bodies were found, rumors started spreading, though. This is where it starts to get a little nuts, of course. You know, people back then. So rumors started spreading about a satanic ritual or the work of devil worshippers. So this was this was part of the satanic panic that was going on back in the eighties and nineties. The satanic panic claimed many victims back then and some of those victims are still serving time to this day. So based on my research that I was wow. able to do. And that might actually lead to a bonus episode for this podcast. Okay, yeah but that'd be good. You know, I'm considering it because it's very interesting, but you know, I, I digress. This has nothing to do with this case. But uh so the rumors are going around about devil worshippers in connection with these murders, and the police didn't do anything to negate these rumors. Instead, they seemed to jump on board and follow that path. They even assigned the case number 93-05-0666 to the, number, uh, to the murder file. Oh, wow. Yeah, to the murder investigation file. Uh, you know? Yeah,
1: and then, you know, on the whole satanic panic thing, I know I can remember, and some of the listeners too probably do, if they were growing up during that time, but I remember, you know, hearing about these things and then like at church, you know, or, or going to different kind of events, uh, people speaking on this, this kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. then I remember even my mom, like there were supposedly rumors on the radio about people, you know, kidnapping kids around Halloween and Satan worship stuff. Oh, yeah, so she I remember didn't let us, like she didn't let us go to go out trick or treating one night. So she got candy and got a cake and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And we just did it at the house. But she she didn't, and they were looking specifically for blonde children too. And me and my sister at that time, you know, oh yeah, those, definitely not blonde, blonde back kids. then, but blonde kids because blonde hair, blue eyes, or purity and all that—that oh, that was the thing as well. So I could remember that a
0: little Aryan. Mm,
1: nice. Right? right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> all right. So on May seventh, Steve Jones, the juvenile officer who had discovered the bodies of the boys, interviewed Damian Eccles, who was listed as a troubled teen. He was, out, he was a high school dropout, he had psychiatric problems, he came from a broken home where CPS had visited several times, and he suffered from depression. He was monitored by Jerry Driver, who was another juvenile officer who shared his, his suspicions with West Memphis PD that Damien might be their suspect. He noted that Damien wore black, he had long hair, he listened to heavy metal music, he had a tattoo, and he was a self-described Wiccan. Which none of this is good in you know the Bible Belt community of West Memphis, Arkansas, back then. But in the grand scheme of things, that does not make you a murderer. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but
1: doesn't help you back then with the Bible Belt. No,
0: but but come on, you know, like none of that makes you right anything but who you are. Like there there were tons of people like that. There still are tons of people who wear black, who paint their nails, who do the emo thing, but they aren't being put in prison for murder boys. because of how they yeah, dress and the right. music they listen to. Like, I even listened to freaking Metallica and stuff back then. Yeah, Everyone did. Right. So I wasn't killing people. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's because I didn't wear black all the time. I, I don't know. But it just seems really ridiculous to me that that was what they were basing. A real black shadow <laughs> and we playing shirts. Yep. Nope. That wasn't me. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so anyway, between May 7th and May 10th, Police interviewed Damien three separate times, both at his home and the police station, where Damien denied any involvement in the crime. Damien even took a polygraph willingly, though the examiner noted that there were signs of deception. During these three days, police also interviewed Damien's close friend, Jason Baldwin, and his girlfriend, Dominique Tier, who also denied any involvement in the crime. And I'm also going to note here that Damien took a polygraph, and they said that he was lying. You'll see that they love their polygraphs in a second. You know, like, no. <laughs> like you're going to be like, how many polygraphs do they give people? And you'll see, again, that they aren't the best at reading their polygraph. But he
1: passed his polygraph, right? It was just yeah, shown getting... as kind of deceptive, I guess?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, they said that the, the examiner said that he was being deceptive the whole time. No. But later it comes out that the examiner was wrong. Oh. Yeah. Wow. I'll, I'll get to that. So. Okay. At this point, the investigation was going nowhere. Police were focused on this satanic theory and didn't seem to be looking for any additional leads, like anything real or concrete. They were just focused on this one satanic theory, like these guys had to do it. It was like they had Damien convicted from the start and were trying to make the pieces fit around him. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah.
0: So, when a waitress named Vicki Hutchison, told police she believed the killings were cult-related and she was willing to help them out. They let her. So volunteer volunteer police deputy here. Yeah. She had a connection Under to Coward. Jesse Miskelly Jr. He sometimes babysat for her, mowed her lawn, and she remembered that Jesse had told her that he had a friend, Damien, who drank blood and stuff, and that was quoted. He, he quotes that, drink blood and stuff, <laughs> End quote. So she thought that she could get Jesse to introduce them by telling Jesse that she was interested in dating Damien. So Jesse agreed and brought Damien over to meet Vicki.
1: Oh, hey. What do you mean? He drinks blood and stuff? Set me up on a date. That sounds like my
0: kind of guy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And she's, I mean, she's a waitress. She's obviously got a kid already and stuff. I don't know how she was at this time, but why are you trying to date a younger dude like that, too? Damien was a kid, he was 18. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Anyway. Oh, Vicky.
2: Oh, Vicki.
0: <laughs> so, from what I found, though, Vicki told a huge lie about this meeting between her and Damien. But this didn't come out until years later. Was that like Donald Trump huge? Huge. Because it could be huge. It could be very, very big. So, she said big, that. Bigly. Bigly. <laughs> so, she said that on May 19th. She went with Damien and Jesse to an espet, or gathering of witches, in a field outside of town where she witnessed some young people with painted faces, painted black faces, having an orgy. She was reportedly offended by the orgy and had Damien drive her home. She then reported this story to the police and took along her son, Aaron, who also told police that he had gone to Robin Hood Hills with the victims, Michael, Stevie, and Christopher before, and that they had seen... The men chancing in a circle and doing quote what men and ladies do end quote Vicky took a polygraph on June 2nd and she was found to be telling the truth but we found out later that she wasn't.
2: Wow those yeah no polygraph Oh uh, no
0: those polygraphs and the, the examiner's interpretation of them. So the next day on June 3rd, armed with this grand story and a passing polygraph, the police pick up Jesse Miss Kelly Jr for questioning. They tell Jesse that there is a $35,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the people responsible for this crime and that if he helps them, his family could be eligible for the money. So they conduct, guess what, a polygraph interview with Jesse. And during this interview, Jesse denies any knowledge of satanic activity or the murder. However, the polygraph examiner says he's lying, so detectives push him hard for hours for information. So, um, finally, after hours of non-stop questions that I'm going to point out weren't recorded or videotaped, so no one knows exactly, you know, what actually happened in that room except the investigators and Jesse. And let's also point out the fact that Jesse had an IQ of 72 and was noted to be somewhat mildly retarded. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Jesse broke down. By being questioned for so long, and he finally decides to tell them what he thinks they want to hear, just so he can go home. So Jesse himself said that he had to repeat the story from start to finish over and over again, and if he got a detail wrong, they had to start over from the beginning. So he could, so he started making sure that whatever information they fed him, he repeated back to the police during this interrogation and questioning. Whatever this led to Jesse giving a false confession of murdering the boys and included Damien and Jason. No. Yeah. So, like, for example, Jesse said that the boys were tied up with rope, but they were tied up with shoe things. So, from their own shoes. Mm-hmm. And Jesse didn't know that. Yeah. And so he's saying, yeah, they were tied up with rope when he was Only left. Only
1: the killer would know the exact details.
0: Right, right. But, you know, he didn't kill them and he didn't have anything to do with it. But, so he's like, when the cops are like, "So were they tied up?" He's like, "Yeah, with rope." And they're mm-hmm. like, "Are you sure it was rope?" Right.
1: Which sounds like the logical thing. Yeah, well, tied up. Oh, rope.
0: Right, but they got him to say like the leading questions and the way that they would phrase things got him to say was shoe the shoelaces. Mm-hmm. He didn't know that, but he would change his story to match whatever the investigators would yell at him for getting the details wrong, like. They had let it enough that he finally got the details down, and if he got it wrong, they would they would yell at him about it, you know. And this is a kid who has very low IQ. He's tired. He wants to go home. He thinks he can go home to his parents. So he just tells this them.
1: What, just tell them what
0: they want to Yeah, just and so I can go. So it was not wasn't a good thing going on in this in this interrogation room. But the investigators did things like. They they try to show him a circle diagram, and they tell him that he could be either inside the circle with the killer, or outside with the police. Sort of a, you can be good or bad, what are you going to do? Wow. Yeah. And they also ignored the numerous denials that Jesse had of any knowledge of the crimes, and they played a scary recording of Aaron Hutchison's voice saying, nobody knows what happened but me. You Remember Aaron, Aaron yeah. Hutchison is Vicki Hutchison's little boy, yeah. you know, that came in saying that he was with... Creepy. Right? So, here's a guy, low IQ, tired, wants out of there, just trying to get his story straight. He's being basically tortured by police, you know? So, five hours into being interviewed, the police finally started to take Jesse's confession. And I put confession in, in quotation marks because it's not a real confession. Yeah. You know, it's his false confession. So, in that confession, Jesse says that he damien and jason were in robin hood hills when he saw damien beat up christopher byers and jason beat up stevie branch michael moore tried to take off running and jesse caught him and held him until damien and jason came and got him then jesse says he left but came back and when he came back he he saw the boys were naked and tied up and that quote they started screwing them and stuff cutting them and stuff and i saw it and turned around and looked and then I took off running, end quote. He said during the confession that he went home, and Damien and Jason called him asking why he didn't stay, and he told them it was that he just couldn't stay. So one major point I want to highlight in this confession that didn't match what the autopsy report showed was that Jesse says that they started to sexually assault the boys. And the autopsy report stated that the boys were not sexually assaulted. Yeah. They did have some trauma through areas of their genitals and their... Anus that were later shown to be animal, yeah, like animals trying to bite them and stuff. Okay, so it wasn't sexual trauma, though.
1: Well, too <clears throat> his whole confession. Now that you know, reading this and hearing you talk about it, like I'm surprised he got life, too. Because you think he'd be more accessory to murder, or, like he just held one of the kids. He didn't do anything to oh. any of the kids.
0: Yeah, that he got he got life,
1: and he saw it, but just. But,
0: I think he was actually, and I I mean, we'll get to it, of course, but I, I think he was actually convicted of first-degree murder of Michael Moore for, for his part of catching and, him uh, and holding him. Yeah. But, you no, know, like, even in his confession, he doesn't admit to doing anything yeah. to harm these boys.
2: Right.
0: Which, I mean, I, I'm no expert or anything, but wouldn't you just try to cut yourself out altogether? Why would you include yourself in any part of it if you really were a part of it? Right. So it just goes back to the false confession part of, Jesse's just trying to go home. Mm -hmm. He's just trying to tell the police what they want to hear so that he can go home. Like, he's done. So it just makes me mad. It really does make me really angry. So now the, the police have a confession, and they go and they get warrants to search the homes of Jesse, Jason, and Damien, and they have arrested all three on capital murder charges by 10.30 p.m. And the next morning, June 4th, 1993, the police hold a press conference to announce the arrests. and the lead investigator, Gary Gitchell, is asked how strong their case is on a scale of 1 to 10, and he cockily answers, an 11. Just so cockily, it still makes me sick. Like, he's like, you cannot be more arrogant. Right. The way that he says it. You know, it's just, oh my gosh, it makes me mad. Like, you shouldn't be saying anything like that, period. No. Like, you don't know what kind of case you have, first off. You just made these arrests based on confessions Well, and you... it can make you look stupid, too, by being that... Well, much. and I think it did. I think so. <laughs> I mean, I really do think it, it, mm-hmm. it did make him look stupid. Yes, these guys got convicted, but later on we'll see that they didn't stay right. in prison. So, you look like a total ass. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, my gosh. Anyway... So I mean, it's, it's great to be confident in something, but to be as cocky about something like that is horrible. Like even if you had the right people, even if these three, these three boys, well, you just professionalism, you know? exactly. You don't, you don't do that.
1: Basically, we'll, you know, I don't, yeah. I don't have a number right now, but we'll see in the coming days. Is
0: right, like have a little bit of tact and clap.
1: Yeah, what comes out?
0: He just didn't. So it just really makes me really, really pissed off. But anyway, um, I believe that they targeted Damien Eccles from the start. And Jason, this is the saddest part. He's the saddest one to me. I mean, Jesse's sad because he's he's been manipulated by police and he's done this false confession he's got a little IQ and all that kind of stuff. But, but Jason was guilty by association. Yeah. He's Damien Eccles' best friend. So they were like, oh. always together anyway. Yeah. So when Jesse's doing his confession, and he's throwing Damien in there. He's including Jason, because that's his best friend, and everybody knows it. So now Jason is guilty. Of, like, he's pulled into something that like, why? Yeah. This poor kid. You're guilty because you're friends with Damien. It, it just... And oh my gosh, it's, it's so, so frustrating to me that any of it happened. Yeah. And then, you know, on top of that, Poor Jesse, he gets pulled into it because this Vicky chick is like, "Oh, I know Jesse, who's friends with Damien, who I can get close to Damien by," and she tells this wild lie, yeah, of something it's that horrible. happened. I mean, and included Jesse in that lie, so now Jesse's also
2: people's livelihoods. Yeah, just you're just ruining changing.
0: lives. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I hate to be rude about it, but she screwed them over mm-hmm. with her lie mm-hmm. you know and the police didn't do their job by uh, fact
1: checking things and vetting it really vetting stuff yeah
0: and trying to find the actual killer like when Jesse was in his questioning when he was denying it and denying it and getting details wrong and facts wrong why are you still trying to get him to say he did it
1: during those events too like the day of when the boys wasn't Jesse or somebody at a wrestling tournament or somewhere yeah. gone yeah. So how how
0: exactly? C- but they they don't care about those details. They don't care that they can't weren't in be, town. That's
1: like uh, what's the the uh, Stephen King book and the uh, oh the outsider outsider. Like yeah, how can you be in two <laughs> places at once? Right. Exactly. You know the whole thing.
0: Exactly. There's no way. But they ignored those details. They ignored that stuff. Like I'm telling you guys, listeners, if you don't know about this case, we're not going into even as much detail as we could go into. You've got to go watch the documentaries and listening to the other podcasts for yourself because it is insane the stuff that comes out. But okay, so honestly I think we're gonna pause this right here and we'll pick it up next week for part two. Um that's where we'll talk about the trials or whatever. But I really wanted to get us to this point and allow for all of this to sink in because it's such an involved, crazy case that to be honest, it just failed the victims. The little boys who lost their lives, you know, they were failed miserably. And the pressure that the West Memphis PD had to get this solved and the rush to point a finger and pin it on someone totally robbed these three little boys of any justice, you know, so for now, I, uh, yeah, it's just, just go check out our website at wickedness, true crime, the unknown.com. I'm going to put some links for the West Memphis three on there that you can follow. I'll even link the truth and justice podcast so that you can go in and, and listen to it. If you don't find it on Spotify or wherever you listen it's season five for their their podcast. Yeah, and that's, that's
1: really it. Really I mean, it, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, also, too, check us out on Instagram, Wickedness True Crime, and also you can find us on Anchor at anchor.fm slash wickedness, where you can also support us if you'd like by clicking on support. Again, that's anchor.fm slash wickedness. As always, we appreciate you listening. We hope you keep listening, and we hope to see you back next week for a continuation of the story of West Memphis 3. Thanks again, and see you later. Bye.